might also just be tied to a changing of the guard in terms of collection stewardship, right? There's a lot of America, great American collections which are coming to term and they are being sold, not liquidated. They're just, it's time for them to be sold or they're being broken up and, you know, to offset cost of transferring certain pictures, other pictures have to be sold. And I think we're going to see some of the, you know, Frankenthaler, Motherwell, Gustin's, you know, these names and more are going to start coming out of the woodwork, not because of some great written proposal, but because the original, you know, stewards of those collections have sadly passed on or ahead of, you know, those collections are now in cell mode. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. This is our hot list for the second quarter of 2022. Using LiveArt's comprehensive data, we looked at the sales in April, May, and June in London, New York, and Hong Kong. We tried to identify the artists with high hammer ratios across multiple sales. Hammer ratio is the hammer price over the low estimate. We narrowed that list down to a few dozen artists, excluding, for example, the names from the winter hot list. Then we boiled it down further to 16 artists whose markets we think are worth paying some attention to right now. To give all 16 artists the time they deserve, along with some related observations from the marketplace by George O'Dell, we split the podcast into two parts. In this episode, George discusses the markets for Ernie Barnes, Anna Wayan, Robert Motherwell, Scott Kahn, Linda Benglis, Donald Bachelor, Francesco Clementi, Robbie Duiantono, and Catherine Bernhardt. If you want to follow along as we discuss the sales, go to analytics.liveart.io, type the artist name in the navbar search window in the upper right-hand corner. Once you're on the artist page, scroll down to the search results. In the right-hand corner, you can sort by date sold newest to oldest, or use the auction sales tab to select only the sales for 2022. Now, let's hear from George. George O'Dell, welcome back to the podcast. It's time to do yet another hot list for the second quarter. Exactly. It's part two of a a four-part series for 2022, and we've got some good stuff to talk about. Some old names, some new names, Nice bit of churn across the globe, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I should point out one thing is we've we've actually gone to an effort to only include the names that were not in the last hot list, not that those uh, artists don't continue to sell, and you'll in a conversation there'll be some overlap of things that gain momentum in the first qu- quarter, but just so that we're covering as many bases as possible, we're focusing on the new names in the uh, second quarter that uh, emerged. Totally. And there's, there is, in, the, in, in that regard, a lot of overlap and a lot of things that have tracked in very similar ways that I think we're going to touch on today. Some rediscoveries, some things that match down to, you know, we talked about Drexler in the first quarter, and I think we're going to talk about some other artists that have been plucked out of semi-obscurity and become market darlings in their own right. 
And I think we'll talk about some names that are going up the list and some names that are going down the list and some names that I think we're wondering. Let's have a good rundown of it. That is the perfect lead in to the first artist is someone that very few people knew about. So we're going to start with Ernie Barnes, an artist that very few people had heard of before May. Since then, there have been about six or eight different works sold, including the one that sold for $15 million, sort of setting off... um, this kind of attention around the globe. But what's even more interesting is not, I mean, the $15 million sale was was fascinating, but usually you have those kind of spikes and then a pause. Since then, we've seen uh, several multi-million dollar sales and a number of very high six-figure sales. And, and many of these have been sold in Asia uh, as well as the U.S. And just to kind of kick that off, it kind of feels like a bit of a Cole Scott or Martin Wong phenomenon, right? And then I'm thinking right now to the one that Bonhams is offering, which sounds a lot like a school in Northwestern Connecticut that sold to Martin Wong a few years ago that had been living in a dorm room forever. And now we've got an Ernie Barnes coming out um, from, a, from a church that was a commission work. I have to say that I started hearing about Ernie Barnes rumblings in the market from a good advisor friend of mine who is kind of ear to the ground on these kinds of things and like looked at a lot of Harry Who and other types of, you know, that vernacular of American art. And I looked at it and I immediately recognized it from my days as a high school hip hop fanatic. There's an album called Uplow, uh, Uptown Saturday Night by the group Camp Low, which is some real backpack rap for any babies of the 80s high school, 90s high schoolers out there, um, where they appropriated Sugar Shack as the cover of their basically best, um, I think one of two albums. And I, so I sort of always had that image imprinted in my mind. And then when I started seeing Ernie Barnes popping up, I think it was a Kreps maybe a little bit. And then also, you know, really in those Christie's mid-season sales, you started seeing little paintings, drawing here, drawing there. And then all of a sudden Sugar Shack hits the market, which is by all intents and purposes, the best painting ever painted by Ernie Barnes. Um, you know, and I think it does speak to that under underappreciated in the lifetime rediscovery that we see across the globe uh, time and time again. Uh, you know, Ernie was an artist. He was a professional football player. He's kind of in all these different circles. So for him to kind of get this market due is not un- unwarranted by any means. And I think similar to Cole Scott having, you know, the show at the New Museum, which is getting great reviews and, you know, the sale of Washington Crossing the Delaware, which made the big price, you know, I think that like Sugar Shack will kind of probably track the way that that painting tracks. Like there will be other great sales, but I'm unsure of anything that will surpass that sale in particular. Oh, oh, of course not. But I mean, that's a great comparison because there have been Cole Scott's that sold before and after George Carver Washington crossing the Delaware, but none as spectacularly or as close uh, uh, together as these barns have. I mean, relative to the, the I, I can't remember the, the, it was about the same price, 15 million for the uh, Cole Scott. And we haven't seen a 2.3 or $1.8 million Cole Scott uh, follow so quickly on. I mean, it's it's three months afterwards and we've had six or eight uh, big sales. And I, and I think that's one, the moment in the market in which this hits, we had a certain kind of escalation where I think Cole Scott had been a name that was turning around a little bit and they were appearing in day sales and there was people in the background trying to make it a thing or get excited about it. Whereas this kind of ramped from almost not obscurity, but it really ramped right into Sugar Shack. Like there was a number of sales hit a big price. Then you have other good examples come out immediately after the question then becomes, 
how many great examples are really buried out there and then you know creates market fervor is this the last great painting that will come out or will there be others and i think you know forthcoming exhibition or some kind of full understanding of the catalog will you know give light to this side of american art i i also don't think we can underestimate the fact that um what everyone thinks of these uh, artists colescott uh, barnes Barnes is certainly a more sentimental artist and easier for a broader group of people to identify with. And many of the works that have sold are these kinds of group scenes that are very similar to Sugar Shack. It follows a lineage of American painting. You know, there is there are political and social undertones, obviously, to the work. But the same way that Charles White has them, they're not as overt, maybe, as Cole Scott. So beyond that, you can also make lineages to other American art, you know, coming out of the Great Depression and into the 1940s and 1950s. You know, there is a similar aesthetic with these elongated characters, the, you know, pulled out dramatic backgrounds. So they, they are, in a sense, easier to live with. You know, I think we can talk about a whole host of rediscovery artists, but I think there is a kind of broad mass appeal within Ernie Barnes's work that might be missing from other things that you see in museums more regularly. We could talk all day about Ernie Barnes and we've got a lot to cover. So let's move from a, a, a rediscovery to a discovery. Um, mm -hmm. Possibly the most sort of uh, sensational new artist because of the press coverage and interest in both her personality and personal life, but very much in the uh, art itself because, uh, you know, there is a bubbling trend of this kind of neoclassicism. Anna Wayant had a flood of sales this spring, mostly it seems uh, driven by demand, but also by uh, interest in sort of a, a group of holders moving on. So there's a lot of inside baseball here, and I, I defer to you on the, these subjects. Totally. I think we've been, you know, the spring sales saw an Anna Wyatt in every single evening sale, right? And we saw it again in London as well. Um, it started in Hong Kong, went to New York, where we had the big prices. And then we got back to London, where things seemed to taper off a bit. And that kind of arc, I think, one tracks to the quality of pictures, which were placed in each sale season. I think New York got the lion's share of the good pictures. Um, you know, not all of them, but, you know, the Sotheby's certainly had a marquee standout picture, as did Christie's. Phillips one, I'd say, was stepped down from there. And I think the pricing pretty much tracked the way that you would expect it to based on that. You know, there's Anna Wine's been in the hunt, I think, for someone to land one in an evening sale for over a year. And it's just, you know, tender, tender toe of people trying to, if they were going to get out there and do it or what was going to happen. There's certainly a lot of, you know, behind the scenes, private sale action over the last year within her market, things moving hands, moving hands again, you know, from small early paintings to the still lives to some of the larger portraits, like we saw in the auctions. Um, you know, there's a spur too, with obviously with the gallery shift, and we had a certain group of paintings that were consigned, as we've all seen in the articles that came out in the newspaper, um, that may have been opportunistic, may have been out of animosity, may have been a blend of the two. People shot their shot and they got they got their result in the end, right? And I think that set the market between what a great portrait should go for and what a still life should go for, what one of the adolescent girls should go for, you know, where all these things to date should sell and why why they should command what they command. You know, I think New York got the $1 million apex pretty quickly that we all knew should happen. And then London sales at the end of June had lesser quality works, I think, than what we had seen in May. 
which fine, that's a that's a product of supply and demand in the market and trying to build June sales in London really quickly on the heels of billion dollar weeks in New York. And, you know, I think that that quality really spoke to what sold for what. And so what I think remains to be seen in this market is what happens now that she has officially left Blum & Poe, is going to Gagosian. Will she start painting much bigger paintings? You know, the image that they use for the press release certainly suggests that's the case. You know, what will be the tone between grand scale works that fill a 24th street side space vis-a-vis something of a, you know, a meter, 60 inches, you know, depending on metric or, you know, empirical systems that you use, um, you know, what, what will be that price differential? What will primary look like? So I think those are questions that might cause a stall out and new material hitting the market, be it public or private. And you know, a sort of wait with bated breath as to what the availability will be in a forthcoming exhibition, what the pricing will be, and what the scale will be. I thought the most interesting tidbit to come out of the Wall Street Journal article, not that it wasn't without lots of fun things to learn, but I believe the journal said there were only 50 or 60 paintings. And we've seen nine sell publicly recently. So that's, you know, uh, 17, 18% of her uh, extant paintings have tra- have right. traded. That, that would suggest it's going to be hard for people to come up with more work for public or even private sale. Well, how many how many are eight plus works, right? And where are they buried? And, you know, I, I certainly think that there are more B works out there than A's, you know, based on my understanding of what I've seen in places and looking at exhibitions. So the, the the big question will be what comes what comes next? What's the quality? What's the subject matter? What's the scale? You know, that's it's a very similar, you know, she's a young painter. She's got a huge career ahead of her in terms of time to paint and you know, time for output and building a catalog across all mediums. Um, whereas, you know, you know, a couple of years ago when Matthew Wong started hitting the million dollar plus market, right? there was a, a thought that there was only like 50 some odd works in the estate. So, you know, a really closed market or even thinking further back, and I don't know, I'm thinking deceased artists, but if you think about what's available today, actually artists who pass before their time have smaller catalogs, you know, to play with, you know, look at Noah Davis, right? There's only so many great Noah Davis paintings out there. And every Noah Davis exhibition has the same sort of three or four paint, like benchmark paintings in it. So I think it will will remain to be seen, and we hope she has a long and healthy career and healthy life. That you know, what comes next? What does it look like? Um, this the sophomore album, so to speak. Right, but I guess what we're both saying is, don't expect to see this this fall. In fact, it'd probably be best that you know the, the, a lot of this goes private, and given the the you know uh, wingspan of her dealer, that there'll be a fair amount of control to her market until she produces more work and time passes. I, I should think so. You know, there is there's probably a moment. Young artists, you know, what do you want to do when you're a young artist? Get seen, get known, sell work, pay your rent, and you know, sometimes selling out a show isn't selling well. So you know, things that were four hundred dollars on a beach blanket all of a sudden shoot up in price. Of course, there's going to be some churn, but if you can survive that initial churn and get down to the steady steady process of making paintings and having good shows, you know, and with a well-managed gallery team in place, then I think you'll be, you'll be in good stead. Well, she's definitely paying rent uh, now. When I went through all of the data we have trying to come up with the artists who sold above their estimate range and enough mm-hmm. sufficient n- number of works to, you know, that it just wasn't a stray object or two, 
I was really struck that Robert Motherwell's name came up. Uh, and it's it's primarily from uh, uh, two or three works in the uh, May Sales, a small Spanish elegy, uh, well, one on paper and one of painting. But still, I mean, one would have thought that market was pretty well sorted. And to see them jump, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on, on what might be driving that. You know, I think jump or climb back up to a place where they should be sitting. You know, Robert Motherwell being abstract, abex, also black and white, so not you know, everybody's first and foremost favorite color palette, myself excluded. I, I love a bit of black and white. Um, you know, we're still off the auction record highs, right, of 2018s, 2019s. But I think what you've seen is you know, in arguing that for the quality and the scale of material coming out, you know, a consistency in price. And maybe you also have a growth in price for smaller works. Like if the top level pieces are now out of budget, a great, you know, Spanish elegy, you know, can tap out at 12 million, but you want a Spanish elegy, but your budget's three to five, maybe you're going more down in scale, but staying high in quality. You know, I think this probably also comes on the heels of, you know, a shifting trend. I don't think we're all the way there, but we're probably moving back into a bit of abstraction. And if you look around the market and you see what else is out there, all of a sudden, Motherwell, one of the key main people in ABX, all of a sudden starts to feel in relative terms to the listener base out there, cheap. So maybe that's a safer haven for an investment. Maybe it feels undervalued compared to other things. So it's a, te a textbook artist, right? You're not going to have the conversation about ABEX in America without Robert Motherwell at some point. Look at you know, look at the show at the Royal Academy, right, front and center. So I think I think that's part of it. You know, maybe a moving to higher grounds for some people, back to more like proper blue chip things, or you know, just what's overheated and what feels undervalued. Do you think that's going to cause some of the specialists to go and try and, you know, convince someone they know who has a big Spanish elegy that, hey, there's there's clearly demand here in this register of, you know, the couple of million range. And that implies if there's a forty five million dollar Pollock that sells on one bid, that maybe the twelve point six million record for a public sale of a Motherwell is undervalued and you're, you know, equally uh, important work might be, I don't know, 18, 25 uh, million. I, I, that could be the sense, but it might also just be tied to, and I think we can see this in other artists we're going to talk about today, a real, you know, a changing of the guard in terms of collection stewardship, right? There's a lot of America, great American collections, which are coming to term and they are being sold, not liquidated. They're just, it's time for them to be sold or they're being broken up and, you know, to offset cost of transferring certain pictures, other pictures have to be sold. And I think we're going to see some of the, you know, Frankenthaler, Motherwell, um, Mitchell, more, you know, other Rothko's in private hands, Gustin's, you know, these names and more are going to start coming out of the woodwork, not because of some great written proposal, but because the original, you know, stewards of those collections have, you know, sadly passed on or, ahead of, you know, those collections are now in sell mode. They're not no longer in acquisition mode and what's been gifted has been gifted and what has been deemed, you know, family asset or, you know, however they're set up in their personal lives, it's it's time for those to be sold. So I, I think we're going to, I think that's, that's a continuing trend that we're going to see occur outside of, you know, I guess you could file some of it under the death, but 
you know, I, I, I'm no divorce lawyer, but I don't see another Maclow coming down the pipe. Well, and, and it's, I think it just it depends where those paintings are, but it does suggest that if you've got a great one, there may be more interest than than we necessarily have evidence of otherwise. Right, totally. I I, I think that's probably true. I, I just think there's also probably a more passive flow of those names in that era of artwork that's going to come to market. Yeah. You know, the New York Times has been talking about the great asset transfer for well over a year now. You know, they, every time there's a big art sale, you know, New York Times art section has something about asset transfer and then deal book or, you know, somebody else piggybacks on it. So I think I think that's part of what we're seeing. No, that makes sense. So you mentioned Matthew Wong. Let's switch to his successor, Scott Kahn, who sort of came to everyone's attention because Matthew Wong uh, found him on Instagram uh, and a few uh, galleries picked him up. And there was a very big sale in Hong Kong, not yet a year ago. Uh, it feels like it was forever ago, but it was just nine months or so, so ago. And then since then, this last quarter, there have been, I think, of the 12 works auctioned, 10 have appeared since April, including a new record price at 1.4 million, again, set in Hong Kong. A lot of this is heavily in Asia, even though he's um, a Brooklyn-based artist, uh, you know, has worked here his whole life. So I, I think, you know, successor, predecessor, depends on, you know, which way you look at it. You know, the, the, the narrative is the teacher of Matthew Wong, you know, Market Darling comes afterwards. You know, I, in my mind, I sort of think about the fact when Guyton got the museum show before Wool did, right? Like, which which came first? Um, but you know, discovery comes in various forms, and certainly an artist that everyone, you know, or the vast majority of people gravitated towards before his untimely passing, you know, looked for something else in that vernacular or some other kind of story around him was the discovery of Scott Kahn. And we have seen Matthew Wong paintings trade very heavily in Asia. And I don't, you know, it's not a surprise to me that Scott Kahn goes that way too. If you think about Adrian Genie and you think about other figurative work, you know, and this kind of hyper photorealistic style and think about Magritte and other, you know, names that get tossed around next to Scott Kahn. It's not surprising that big sales have come out of Asia. I think what was interesting to see was the stability of the market during the May sales and into the Hong Kong record record um that we had the all mean rest show in new york as well which was met with you know great great fanfare and success both in the press and amongst collectors and you know enthusiasts of art and commentators across social media and abroad um you know i thought i thought that was a really st stabilizing moment and i think there is and from what i hear you know expectations that there's still very much room to run in this market I think what we'll see is, you know, he's got been Scott Kahn's been painting for a very long time. So he's got a lifetime we'll, worth we'll, of work. We'll, yeah. He's got a lifetime worth. He's got a full catalog worth of work, and like where these bodies buried, and I'm sure a lot of them, you know, the discovery of these things in local auction houses will probably continue. Everyone set your, you know, tracking monitors now. Um, but I think we'll also do we understand if a 2012 painting, which is currently the record versus a 2002 painting, which was the previous record versus a 2016 painting, which is the third, you know, highest sale point, are those more important than a 1980s painting, right? Like where, where is date important or is it just what it's about, how it's- Or su subject matter, you know, the figures versus the landscapes, yeah. My, my guess is that I, I 
iconic imagery like the tree, either at night or sunset or day, the leaves, the houses, the kind of very Magritte feeling landscape paintings will be the A plus works as opposed to the ones with people in them for the most part. If I had to guess, if I had to you know, stare and to ponder the orb, that would be my conclusion. He's not quite the draftsman Magritte was, so uh, the, there's a certain element where getting... They're good. I don't know. I, I went to the Almin Rush show and saw all of them, and, and I thought, you know, they're well executed. He's got, he's got chops. He can paint. And there is something that it has a mass appeal to it about them. You know, they're fine. You know, nothing, nothing we're going to talk about today is for everybody. You know, nothing is universally loved, but I can see why there is broad global appeal for the artist. No, and I thought that, you know, that the, the Bird of Paradise that was sold in um, Hong Kong, I believe in a day sale, was one of those very striking, it didn't look like the rest of the subject matter, and yet it, it is a very striking, colorful painting. It seems almost like that's undervalued given, you know, how much it stands out. That's the other thing. It's That wasn't a very big painting. It was under 30 inches in both directions. You know, that's uh, not, a, not a huge painting. So I think, I think this isn't the last we've heard of of Scott Kahn and certainly given the museum show announcement coming in 2023, I believe, um, at M, there was a museum announcement made just after the May sales. Well, that, that, that'll certainly continue it on. And, and Hong Kong is obviously the place uh, for it to, to, yeah. to happen. Yeah. So more rediscoveries. There was a great Linda Bengla show at Mnuchin in the last year or so. And then there were a number of her works across several different galleries at Art Basel in Miami. It's not like there's a price band and they're all at the top recent sales, but there have been a, a number of recent sales this spring that kind of, um, I guess, sort of brings it all together, right? Sort of shows that there's demand and interest and and should you know continue this market movement. And we've really kind of been pushing in that direction to hit that million dollar price point that we saw for the Bangladesh, I believe it was at Sotheby's, and I think it was the one that kicked off the day sale, actually, um, Moretti. Um, that was, you know, that was a building block moment. And I think, you know, kudos to my former colleagues at Sotheby's who have been, um, pushing Bangladesh along and putting it in good places and bringing good examples to market and really kind of owning, owning some of that. And, you know, they, they control the top two sales, you know, the one they just achieved and the one they achieved, you know, six months prior in the November 21 sales. So, you know, I think Bangladesh has been on the lips of dealers for certain, you know, especially ones working in more blue chip material as something that felt undervalued, um, as well as, you know, some of the great American collectors, um, where, you know, can you find a great example? Now, I'm not going to say it's the most buoyant market because there's, you know, just because you pull out a, a knot piece means you're going to get a big price. But when you can find something substantial, something, you know, of quality that was in the Mnuchin show, um, you know, or the one that Sotheby's had, that's going to see the market move, right? And I think that's part of it. Where is a name that feels important to the great, greater you know, vernacular of American 20th century art, but maybe hasn't hit its full stride yet? You know, we talk a lot about John Chamberlain. There's a lot, you know, these are wall sculptures. They're very fluid. We've seen, you know, other artists like Sam Gilliam with, you know, interesting wall wall hangings and other pieces have their market time. So this doesn't feel out of the ordinary. Where it goes beyond the low millions, who's to say? That's That'll be the, the next stage. 
And then, you know, again, which material, which colors, all these questions, I think, as to what stratifies the market from there. But the important part is, is it it's setting a benchmark and encouraging people to look for these things and look at them. And so someone who who either has owned one for many years and thought it was kind of consigned to being a footnote and now understands it's quite valuable, maybe more interested in either stepping forward or answering that email uh, or text. Along with Benglis, Donald Batchelor died late last year, I think. And then there was a an interesting little blip. I mean, these are not huge numbers, but but you know, significant five and six figure, low six figure sales of his work in May. Is that is that just sort of curiosity? Is that the a mini trend, a little wavelet uh, a portending interest later on? Well, I think part of that is the sale that the Bachelors appeared in, right? I think that has to do a bit with the Amon sale. I believe the self-portrait was part of that auction. Um, you know, if you if you thought Donald Bachelor's self-portraits were ice cream cones or snow people, think again, he actually made a self-portrait. So maybe this is a very rare bird of a painting. And, you know, from my experience in the past, Donald Bachelor's typically came out of collections in Scandinavia or they came out of America. And where did they go? Back to America or back to Scandinavia. So it was interesting to see this come out of such a renowned dealer's collection. I think star, you know, quote unquote, star power of that sale would probably help propel that particular painting to a different level than if it had been a sort of, you know, various owner one-off consignment. Um, I think there's many instances within that particular auction of that 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 occurring where you saw things go for maybe multiples more than they would have had they just been you know a randomly sequenced lot in a day sale or you know an evening sale potentially so you know do i think the basal market is on trend to like totally totally change itself over i probably not hold on to your beach balls you know i don't think there's any reason to to punt them to market just yet well, there's a restaurant on the Upper East Side, I'm forgetting which right now, that has several large uh, paintings of his uh, in the dining room. So- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, oh, what is it? Yeah, yeah, they've got a great wine list. And, I, and <laughs> they, do, they do good pasta, good oysters. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking they're safe on the walls for now, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, I think, I think keep them where they are. Keep, keep schlepping overpriced Chardonnay and uh, antipasta. <laughs> <laughs> Both on the Amon tip and the, you know, sort of resurgence of the 80s angle, the Amans had a a very large Francesco Clemente that is now the record price of $1.8 billion for a Clemente. Uh, but also there was a self-portrait that sold shortly after that for $150,000, which, you know, Clemente just doesn't have these public prices for people to go by. Is that the same sort of thing? Is it more of an Amman or is it Amman plus the recognition we might begin to get more people being interested in, you know, Clemente? I mean, isn't, isn't that sort of like a perennial question of when, like, the 80s stars, say Basquiat, right, like are going to come back into the fold. You know, I think in Q1, we we were talking about that Schnabel sale at um, at Christie's, right? Out of the blue, here comes this, you know, absolute banger of a Schnabel result. And where did that come from? And like, what's the justification for that? And I think certainly we haven't seen a consolidated number of very good to excellent Clemente works on the market in one go. They were all 
priced pretty nicely to start as well. And all of a sudden you felt like, hey, maybe this is like remaining undervalued. Maybe there is something here. Maybe it's time for a rediscovery. But, you know, we all sort of, you know, I hadn't heard much chatter around during the sale about the fact that Levy Gorby had done a couple of shows with Clemente, you know, in the years prior. So, you know, I think this was an instance where fantastic examples in a marquee setting demand a fantastic result that is, you know, could be seen as a bit of an outlier. And it again remains to be seen when, you know, maybe when we get to the 70s, 80s version of the Motherwell collections coming to term, that we'll start to see, you know, the, the really A plus Clementes that people are like, it's just going to stay on my wall until then. And then, you know, they might start popping out of restaurants or they might start popping out of houses. But the Amon sale is exactly that. There's a an 80s yeah. collection that has come through the life of, 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 of the siblings to term. And we're beginning to see that, you know, if, if people start collecting art in their 40s and 50s, many of the people from that generation who were 40 or 50 in the 80s are are getting to, you know, be octogenarians. There's a, a good chance we will start seeing that. And we've, we've seen a renewed interest um, with David Sally with both a number of shows and Scarstat, you know, being actively moving and publicly uh, people trading uh, his work. It does feel like, you know, Clemente was kind of the last name of that group. And now, you know, maybe they start playing off each other. Maybe there's more nostalgia for that uh, period. Yeah. And you'll see those great things. You know, I think there's all to play for. You mentioned David Sally for, you know, the Eric Fischel market to just keep cranking along because where his, you know, the stuff that you see in textbooks, the paintings of the 80s are so strong. I'd certainly say that the pool scenes that come after the art fair shows, show paintings are so strong and kind of, you know, hit you in the face moments. And, you know, I think there's a real testament of a big career, a lull, and all of a sudden coming out with some really, really kick-ass stuff. So I think there there's a moment, we're probably getting there, of like, watch this face, here, here comes the greater 80s again. I think you know, we're going to get further down the list to some German 80s names that have been bubbling along and probably need an uptick to match their peers at some point. But, um, you know, I'll let you kick it down to the next next part of our rundown. Let's take a brief pause in Indonesia. Uh, and, and I'm going to butcher the name, but Roby Dwi Antono has had, I think, eight out of 10 top prices in the last, you know, two, three months. Again, these are you know the top price is three hundred thousand, so we're not we're we're not talking major sales, but there are enough of them that there's beginning to see seem like a consistent market here. There seems to be a consistent market. You know, Antono feels to me like an artist that sits in this world of production, artistic output across paintings, drawings, editions, figurine type, you know, art collectible sculpture things where there, there's a little bit of something for everyone. You know, the master of that market is certainly somebody like Nara or Kusama. And maybe part of what's driving this is a feeling like I should jump on it now because, you know, when it hits Nara levels, I don't know that it will. I don't think it has the same broad appeal. But, you know, I'd rather, you know, pay up front now to be into it rather than miss the boat down the line. You know, same way that people kick themselves for not spending 20K on a Nara drawing five years ago and now they're 120. Javier Callea is the kind of Nara cute. Well, it's just extra cute without the little bit of punky bratness to it. And Antono seems sort of almost like the sort of darker gothic version of it. Same big eyes, but... That's where I was going to go from it. It's just kind of 
you know, juxtaposed magazine collector base, right? That was really into stuff coming out of Orange County. I think Mark Ryden is the top artist in that category. He does like the crazy pump, like living pumpkins, the, the Gothic stuff or Camilla Rose Garcia, right? These are, these are these artists that are in that sort of Southern California Gothic, you know, out, you know Orange County outlook that he's certainly playing into, but from an Asian base, if you, you know, I'm looking at the painting that Phillips sold in Hong Kong in November of last year. And that, that has all that kind of, you know, suburban Gothic vibe to it with a kind of Southeast Asian twist on it. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's interesting that you can both embed it with all these other trends, but it, he's also a very singular kind of artist that, that way. I guess it's exciting to see a, a market develop around it. Maybe we should go do a Southern California neo-Gothic show. <laughs> in, in Hong Kong. <laughs> in Hong Kong. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Hong Kong, we've got this uh, Catherine Bernhardt, you know, running the table in, in basically in May and June, where five, six of her top prices, all in the sort of 250 to 400 range, are taking place mostly for Pink Panthers, but a few other of her works. It, it roughly coincides with her uh, sort of opening with Zwerner. Explain a little bit how that how that sort of market dynamic works. Well, it's interesting because Bernhardt sort of burst on the scene at, at one point. I remember there was the show's Canada Gallery, and then there was a one white cube show in London. And then it felt like it kind of lost the plot for a while. You know, they, they traded, but people were always kind of hunting sub 100. And then it was kind of like, oh, I've got 200 I'd spend on this. So I think the that 200 level price point that you're talking about kind of just gets us back to where the private market was willing to go, which felt like justification against primary in the run up to this Werner show. Why the Pink Panther plus fruit, you know, commands four out of the top five sales results. Is that a nod to the fact that like the Pink Panther by Coons is a standout painting? I don't think so. But maybe they're the easiest to live with. I, I certainly wouldn't pay 400 grand to live with a Pink Panther cigarette and Windex bottle on my wall. But, you know, that's just me. Again, I said I like black and white earlier in this conversation. So that's probably not going to work for me. All those pinks and magentas aren't quite going to fit with your decor. That's going to quite, yeah, that fuchsia is not going to do it. But, you know, again, you know, mass broad appeal. We are in a world where naive art, you know, Q1, we talked about Kerwick and Nava, and this is certainly well-considered art made with spray paint in a kind of slapdash aesthetic, but actually very thought out and constructed artwork. So while the subject matter might be simplified for some, it certainly speaks to others, you know, and there's there's probably a good mass appeal in that in that regard. And it's not everything that she makes. I mean, the people have tried to retrade quickly a number of like the Kate Moss paintings and all, and that hasn't gone so well for them. And that's, that's again, you know, part of this, you know, caveat emptor of the younger art market, right? You know, just because something is by an artist of note, if it comes way too early in their output, it will feel way too early. And I think that was something I was alluding to in that Anna Wyatt conversation, whereas like, I think you see those stratification of prices based on like what was, you know, in that first Blum and Poe show and around those versus what came very early before that and why those two things don't have the exact same kinds of results attached to them. I think you could very much say that the Kate Moss paintings of which I know the Saatchi collection at one stage had a lot of them, you know, don't track to the same prices that you get for a pile of cigarettes or a Pink Panther covered in toilet paper roll or 
another Pink Panther or even a Garfield painting, right? It's just yeah. like, it's not the same subject matter. These are a bit more fun. They're a bit more fluid. There seems to be a better control of the medium, if you will. That's it for now. We'll release the second part of this podcast on August 3rd, when we'll talk about the markets for Sam Gilliam, A.R. Penk, with a side tangent on Georg Baselitz and other European artists, Yuichi Hirako, Susumo Kamijo, Louis Frattino, Ross Blechner, along with some other rediscovered artists from the 1980s, and Danielle Orchard. Finally, we'll have George's take on market conditions going into the fall. I hope you'll join us for that. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.